Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. To celebrate the release of men in UK cinemas today, we've got an exclusive interview with Alex Garland, the writer-director of this divisive folk horror starring Jesse Buckley, Rory Kinnear and Papa Esidu. The premise of men is deceptively simple. It follows the character of Harper, played by Jesse Buckley, who, having just lost her husband um, on the verge of divorcing him, goes to a remote house in an English village to try to recuperate and heal herself from the ordeal that she's done gone through. What happens next in that village? can't quite be summarized or explained, let's just say that all the men in the village, and it's all men, and they're all played by Rory Kinnear, behave very strangely, and the strangeness and the weirdness begins to escalate as the runtime goes on. For anyone who hasn't seen men yet, we do speak quite broadly about the contents of the film and about the ending specifically but to be honest it doesn't get too detailed as much as it gets philosophical on the nature what makes body horror horrific but as always if spoilers are an issue for you then i definitely would recommend coming back to this chat after you've had a chance to see men And I should say as well, this conversation with Alex was actually an incredible one to have. The interview was supposed to last only 15 or 20 minutes, as they usually would in these situations, but it ended up going for about an hour, which is what you were about to hear. And it's really rare, extremely rare, to get to have these type of conversations with filmmakers. And I'm so grateful to Alex for extending our time and for the really intriguing and provoking digressions that we went on. We will also be publishing a deep dive bonus episode into the film itself over on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash the final girls with a special guest, Barry Wild. So once you've had a chance to see the film, then I do encourage you to check that one out um, as well as this conversation. And if you enjoy this podcast in general and these bonus episodes, do give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Girls UK and consider leaving us a little review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. And with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Alex Garland. I always like to start these interviews, first of all, with the same question, genuinely always curious about the process for um, every single filmmaker I speak with. With men, was there a particular scene or character or an image that was the genesis of the film for you? Uh, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, It was uh, two images. I mean, but they're sort of obliquely related. uh, and they're, they're bits of iconography that appear in the film. Um, uh, one is, is sometimes or quite often called a green man, mm-hmm. uh, but has other names as well. Like some people don't like that term and say it's a foliate head or something, but it's, it's basically, uh, a, a man with like leaf matter either growing out of his mouth or, or forming his beard and hair or, or forming his skin or some, something like that, a variation on that. 
and they they appear uh all over Europe and beyond and uh um you could find them in like medieval churches or, or something like that or, or Victorian architecture or whatever or pub mm-hmm. um and then a Sheila and a gig which is uh I, I don't think you could say it's a counterpart to it because then you'd you'd have to know the minds of the people who created these bits of iconography and and understand what they were thinking when they made them and and I think that is unknowable it's mysterious um but but a Sheila Nagig is is another form of iconography, except um, uh, it's um, it, it's a woman holding open her vagina and quite often, uh, as it were, looking straight at you. Um, and and the, the thing about both those bits of iconography that that sort of triggered a, a set of responses in me mm-hmm. is that they do is, is exactly that they trigger a set of responses and the, the the responses are completely your own because there isn't really a good account uh, there's not a reliable account of why these things exist and they're very old um so there's a and so there's a distance of centuries between the the times where some of them were made, not all of them, but some of them were made now. Um, and all you have is your modern subjective response as, as a sort of true response. And, mm-hmm. and, and that, that, that interested me because, uh, because, because then what is the response? Uh, how, what is the subjective response from one person to another? Where, where does it come from? What does it mean? That kind of thing. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but. But, but it, it's those, it's, it was those two things that triggered it. There's, there's a thread there that I like to pull out, which is the unknowability thing about these, these artifacts and these images, right? Which I think is also one of the things that's appealing to me about folklore in general. I know people have associated men with that tradition of, yeah, sure. of horror film. Um, and what I find really interesting and I wanted to ask you about. There's people often associate folklore as a kind of uniquely British tradition of horror, um, which, you know, is not strictly, um, correct, no. really. And uh, even as you mentioned with those two no, images, they, yeah. they appear all over Europe. But I, I was wondering kind of what about the unknowability of these two figures that reappear so often in general and that are, um, unknowable for lack of a better word. What about it started to appeal that then translated into something that feels so contemporary? Well, to be honest, I think folk horror almost always does that. Um, in, in as much, so what folk horror does is, uh, very often is it, is it looks back to some kind of ritual or some kind of bit of imagery whose mm-hmm. actual intentions are unknowable and and place that in a modern setting in order to unsettle people about the period in which they live now, you know? So it's like an invasion of strange old forces into, uh, the modern world. Um, even, even a bit of folk horror like the witch mm-hmm. is in a sense doing that. It's just that the modern world is an old world from this point of view, but it's contemporary mm-hmm. of that time. Something old is coming out of the woods or the 
the pagan church or the uh, the ritual and and disrupting uh, the modern life basically um, and and folk one of the reasons why why folk horror works I think or can work when it's done well is that uh, is that the imagery it employs um, has its own kind of visceral quality uh, that 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 in a way that the makers of the folk horror things are piggybacking off the inherent power of the imagery mm-hmm. that they're using. So so for example, uh, I, I think a good example is witch markings, um, which which are completely in, in sort of reasonable terms are basically indecipherable. Um, but they seem to carry some kind of runic power to modern eyes. And so there you go. That works. Um, uh, in this case, two bits of strange imagery that you often find in churches. Um, uh, it's like it lends them this extra quality of power that if they were modern bits of imagery, let, let's say they did not exist in medieval churches. They had been invented by a graphic designer two years ago. I just don't think they'd have like the it's the folkness that gives them a sense of meaning. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it I think there's a shared similarity with um with art in general and in cinema in particular. Audiences and viewers imbue a piece of work with power um once it reaches the right audience. I think, and I kind of wanted to ask. About as well about your your protagonist. So, well, I mean, it's on the surface. The film is called Men. It it tackles the idea of misogyny very overtly. But looking back on your previous film, there is always central female protagonists and the dynamics between genders are always very front and center, at least the not, way that I've all, always read them. Not, not, not all, but uh, sorry, I, I, I cut you off, but just not always. I mean, uh, 28 Days Later or Sunshine... Uh, or dread, uh, that, that, or that they were male protagonists. Do you know I mean, yeah. just as a point of fact. Oh, of course. I'm, I'm being super specific here and thinking about your directorial work, but I wanted to, to really ask you what, what about the subject or this dynamic, uh, between genders kind of keeps you coming back to reinterpret it or revisit it through, through different films? Um, uh, yeah, I, I'd actually, okay, well, if I was going to answer that question, honestly, I would probably include Debs in there as well, which isn't mm-hmm. a film, it's a television show, mm-hmm. but, but has, has its own, uh, in the character of Lily, it's also investigating some things around this as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I'd say is that, uh, the, the films always have, different sets of preoccupations but they've also got commonalities and one of the, the, the film that men is most correlated to i think in term in these terms in the terms that you're talking about mm-hmm. probably ex machina because because ex machina has within it a uh by the way uh this is from my point of view it, it, of it course. Be from everyone's point of view but this, this is from my point Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it has within it a kind of debate about uh, objectification and and gender, like whether gender is owned or whether it's conferred 
or, or the, you know, the, those, those kinds of things. And, um, and I, it, it had, some things had been turning around in my head. And what I was thinking is all of those previous debates were in some respects abstractions. Um, they were rather sort of intellectual stepped back abstractions where I was thinking about something and I was trying to represent it in terms of a film, but it wasn't, it wasn't very visceral and it wasn't very gut level. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in men, there was something, there was something I was thinking about and, uh, I've tried to articulate this before. And, uh, I'm not sure how well I'll be, I, I'm, I'm not sure I ever managed to articulate it in the way I'm, I mean it, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot, I suppose, which is that there's a side of this, uh, which is to do with not, not exactly anything to do with, uh, men and women, uh, but primarily actually to do with men. And, um, it's, it's to do with a sense of horror. Um, and I'm not saying it's universal. I'm just, but I do think it exists and, and it would work something like this. Uh, when one hears about an overt act of a certain sort, like rape, like Harvey Weinstein, um, one can feel a sense of horror about it. And then there will be a huge sliding spectrum that goes from things that are very easy to put a name to, like rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will, will go way down a sliding scale to much, much more nuanced, subtle things that are harder to put a name to. And so one can hear about the actions and behaviors of other men and feel a sense of horror about it. But then on top of that, there's something else, which is to to do with one's own thoughts and impulses or instincts as a man and to have a sense of horror about them. Um, so nothing to do with pointing fingers, nothing to do with other men, but to do with oneself. And then having had, as it were, a sense of horror directed outwards and a sense of horror directed inwards, then there's a third part to it which is what is the line that can be drawn between, say, me and my sense of horror about myself and Harvey Weinstein and my sense of horror and him and more subtle, more nuanced versions. And what, what, so, so what is that sense of horror? Uh, where is it well placed? Where is it badly placed? What, where is, Where's, as it were, a fair position? Where's an unfair position? And um, uh, I suppose some of the genesis of it comes from trying to address that side of it. Now, I would say personally that Ex Machina doesn't do that at all. I mean, it, it does it in a cursory way because, because by acknowledging a debate about, say, objectification, it must contain some of those thought processes in order to get to the debate about objectification, but it isn't really trying to aim at that, at that weirder and darker and, and more private thing. Mm. Um, uh, so, so this felt like 
something that hadn't, to me personally, had not been done before. And, and it, in, in a sense, the clues in the title that, that it's, that it's, it's not, I keep, I keep being asked questions about it as if I'm writing about what women think about men. And I'm thinking, no, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to, I'm trying to write what I feel actually about myself as much as, uh-huh. as much as anything, you know? It, it, yeah. I, I didn't personally read it that way. Um, and actually what I wanted to ask you kind of, but I'm going to reframe the question that I had prepared based on what you've just answered, which is kind oh. of considering all, uh, those ideas that you were just explaining. Is that why Harper, the character of Harper, is written, well, she's defined entirely by the men that we see in the film, both her husband and all the men that Rory Kinnear plays. We don't actually know that much about her, and I felt like this was a very deliberate choice, and I wanted to, to ask you if it was, if, it, if it's actually a way of exploring um, men from the inside out in a way as opposed to what women think about men or how women experience men in the world? Uh, uh, th- I mean, uh, you know, in interviews broadly, I try to be honest with answers, which often means I, I feel like I'm being sort of disappointing in the answer. But I, I think that um, the truth is that for years I've, I have tried with protagonists to avoid giving backstory. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there, there's, there's very cursory backstory, typically mm-hmm. in the stories that I write. Like you don't say, so even in the first thing I ever wrote, which was called The Beach, you don't really know anything about the protagonist's history. Uh, you, you he exists in the time frame of the story primarily. Um, so, so there will be, there will be things that might be referred to, say in the beach, it might be, uh, he will, the protagonist will refer to, uh, something he used to do when he was a kid or something mm-hmm. like that. And with Harper, the equivalent would be the, uh, the reason she is in this place to process events is because an event that happened with her husband. But somewhere in me, there's like an, an old instinct to avoid backstory because of the way backstory creates inferred answers, um, that, that I just personally resist. So, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's particularly located to this. Mm -hmm. However, I think in this film, it might be, it might be more extreme than it's appeared in previous stories because the story of men is so simple. It's, it's almost like a 10 line narrative. Um, it's, it's really about this turmoil around the story and, and the state of being, a state of feeling or existing around the story rather than the beats of the narrative itself. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do, does that make sense? It does. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've watched, uh, your work, um, most of your work a lot, and it, it does 
you're obviously it's true but i think there is an additional layer of um of harper being like a vessel in a way functioning well, well, like a vessel which well, is well, what well, i was well, trying to get at well, well compare harper to say donald gleason's character in ex machina mm -hmm. um all you know about donald gleason's character is that he lost his parents in a car crash and he mm -hmm. worked at a tech company that that's it that's all you know about him I, I have a, I have a, but, but, you know, you, you know what, rather than, rather than me try to use examples from previous films of, of rather blank protagonists where, where there's, there's limited information, um, uh, I, in a way it's probably better just to talk about this film. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question, What's the inference behind the question? That, 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 that's really what I should ask, I suppose. I think what's really interesting to me about both Harper and all the men in the film is the fact that, there, that we don't know too much about her, but that what we do know is um, she is there because she's you know fleeing or grieving the situation with her husband. Um, so we know of her only what's happened with her with her husband with another man and then every other person except her friend riley who we only seen person at the very very end yeah. everything that occurs to her is more actions from men that are happening at her so yeah. what was became really rich for me is the fact that she is we don't know that much about her and her constant state of anxiety and fear is uh dictated by men in the film that I that was the 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 layer of the question that I found really interesting, and I, I, my question really was perhaps poorly worded. Was no, no, that no, deliberate no. as part of the the thematic exploration of the film? No, it, it, uh, it's not. So it's uh, it's not poorly worded at all. I I think um, uh, <laughs> I I also I wonder if this is to do with just just the sort of differences that like what it's to do with like what constitutes information when mm. i think about harper i think i know quite a lot about her in some respects. so so for example uh i know she is uh independent uh she's conceptually independent because her friend is saying let me come up and she's saying no i i, I want to do this because i want to process something She's also kind of compassionate. So when, when Jeffrey, the landlord, is being um, uh, kind of annoying or silly or saying stupid things, she, she kind of makes it easy for him. You know, she's, she's, she's puzzled or, or a little bit. She, it's, a, it's a thing Jesse's terribly good at is is a sort of fleeting look of confusion followed by a kind of reassuring smile or, or something like that. And, uh, and, and these, to me, are like, in a way, more important bits of information than what her job is or mm. uh, what her, her parents do or where she grew up or something like that. Um, uh, but, and and I, could, I, could, I could go on. But, but um, if, if what you're asking was, uh, was there a deliberate political decision mm 
behind mm-hmm. that, then I, I, I'd say no, there wasn't a deliberate political decision. What, what there always could be is an unconscious mm-hmm. uh, decision that what it's, it's impossible for me to allow for that because it's an unconscious mm-hmm. motivation. But, but it, I did not, I did not sit down and think I'm going to limit information about her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's more just, it's more just an instinct I have. I'll say one other thing and then I'll shut up so you can ask the next question. <laughs> uh, it's been a long running problem for me with mm-hmm. actors, um, in a, in a good natured way. But the people who play the protagonists in the films I write mm-hmm. often run into a problem, which is that because their name as the protagonist appears on lots of pages, it feels as if the protagonist is there doing stuff and uh, um, sort of running the show. But when you break it down and you look at it in terms of what the actor suddenly discovers they're doing, mm-hmm. they, they discover that they're, they're really quite blank a lot of the time. And, and, and things are it's quite often the other characters that have the big speeches um, and have the big lines and the protagonist is is increasingly reduced to a reactive state and I've, I've often often had actors sort of halfway through a project sort of turn to me and go hang on a minute um, I've just realized something uh, and I would say in my working life that has probably literally happened five or six times <laughs> And um, I know we're running out of time, so I wanted to to ask a question about actors, actually, since you moved into that direction. Sure. And I, I think this applies both to Jesse, but I think mainly about on Rory, because mm. he has so many different and very extremely physical, and I haven't even had a chance to ask about that ending, uh, elements to play. Oh, by but- the way, you, you, you can keep going. I mean, if you've got a time problem, you can then, then sure, close it off, but... I, I actually have nothing for the next twenty minutes. So Oh, amazing. I mean I was I was getting messages for the VRs to wrap know, up. Um well my my question does still stand though. How do you and with this film in particular, how did you protect your actors? And I'm thinking especially about Rory because it feels not just a physically demanding role, but um multiple roles, but also quite nasty. Um Albeit small characters to inhabit. Absolutely, and also uh, vulnerable um, <laughs> in in a complicated way, particularly in the birth sequence at the end, because uh, he was he was doing something where he was vulnerable on on many levels. Some of them purely physical, because it was minus two and he wasn't wearing any clothes and. Uh, you know, it's night shoots and it's exhausting and, and also vulnerability because doing, you know, an actor in any scene is vulnerable. Uh, even if they're talking in a room, there's a, there's a vulnerability to it. But doing that stuff is, it is just even more so. I, in terms of how I protected them, I, I'd say it's a, it's a really, it's a complicated thing now. I think, um, uh the main way i protect them i suspect is by treating them as sentient adults with agency and by 
saying, uh, this is what we're going to do and you are a participant in it. This is why I think it's a good idea, but we should talk it through. And, um, and by being open to change, being open to people saying, I don't want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and making it very, very clear that I, that I'm not saying that as lip service, but I really mean it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to, so one of the things that happens in the rehearsal process is, um, actors learn quite quickly that if they want to change a line or, uh, um, or, or say something differently, that I'm fine with doing that, provided that it doesn't interfere with the underlying intention of the scene or the plot or something like that. Um, and so, so you build a sense of openness and trust and, uh, that probably sounds a bit cute, but, but that is, that is basically what it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, to, to the extent that, that by the time we were about halfway through the rehearsal process, we would spend more time, much more time talking about the project or the scene or issues behind it or personal, uh, points of reference to it that we would running the scene and running the lines. And, mm -hmm. um, and for example, uh, Jesse, oh, this is a good example of it. Uh, Jesse ended up, uh, providing dialogue for the vicar. So, so that is an actor giving dialogue to another act actor mm -hmm. for their character now it's not like she she didn't turn up and say look i've written you a new scene it wasn't like that but but it was the product of a discussion that then became folded into the scene and so mm -hmm. um i that that that's the sort of best protection i can offer short of just on a sort of day-by-day -day basis um trying to make sure people are you know we don't go over too much we make sure everyone's fed we it, it, you know th those kinds of protection. the managerial stuff yeah the managerial stuff exactly yeah. yeah and kind of following on from that uh i'm happy to talk about the ending if you are because sure. um, yeah. yeah. aside from being completely unexpected i purposefully can avoided avoid trailers or any coverage of the film before i actually get to watch it yeah. um so <laughs> thank you so i wanted to ask about the extremity of the of the gore and also the the the, the practicalities of it and the imagery Ooh. of it so yeah. it there's a two-part question here and maybe i'm gendering the gendering this a bit too much but this is how i read it was it um a particular decision to essentially subject Rory uh Rory's multiple characters and um Papa's character as well to so much bodily harm, to so much gore and destruction of the body, while Harper is relatively uh, unless I'm wrong, because I have only seen it once, completely yeah. unscathed physically, never actually physically injured, uh, which is a, usually the complete reverse in horror films if we're being honest and and the other thing the other kind of more practical question is how how much of the birthing and rebirthing scenes with rory and, and papa are actually like how far 
could you go or was there any point where it became too much um to practically shoot like was there a larger vision that was just impossible to to make uh to materialize or um uh the okay so uh what i'm going to do is answer the second one first because that's okay. in my head at the moment and then you could you could rephrase the first one yeah sure thing um the the there was there was one there was only one restriction on it uh which was a restriction which was which was self-imposed sort of by myself but also collectively imposed like it's not just me that thought it lots of people thought it and it was to do with the child because mm-hmm. Because in real terms, although Rory's face is there, there was uh, a young boy who was emerging from a prosthetic and crawling across the grass. And mm-hmm. um, and all of the things that were true of Rory were also true of this young boy. But the difference is he's not uh, a man in his 40s. He's a boy. And so there was there, there were things that I suppose I... I could have done differently if there wasn't a child on set, possibly. Um, uh, but that was the only one. Um, uh, I didn't feel any need to go further than we did. Um, the, the, and, and also I have to say, I don't think that the sequence involving the boy is, is tamer than it should be. It feels like about right for the thing. So, um, but, but that, that was, that was my main concern when mm-hmm. we were, uh, definitely. Um, and, uh, but you know, his, his mum was there and we talked about it a lot. He was an incredibly sweet kid and, uh, his mum was very engaged and we were, very honest about what was happening and what the plan was and stuff like that. And he was, they were like, yeah, 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 we get it. A slight follow up onto that. How do you, how do you explain the scene? Which, uh, I'm, when I was watching it, my mouth was literally, my jaw was on the ground because as much body horror as I've seen, that's not the shocking part. This, I was imagining. I'd really like to go back to that sure. body horror that you used and. Uh-huh. Or maybe after answering your other question, but, but sorry, just because I want to query it, but, but, um, sure. but, uh, but you can but, query it now if you want. No, no, finish your question. Uh, I wanted to ask, how do you explain this scene? Because as I was watching it, I was trying to imagine trying to explain it or even see it written on a page. And it feels like something that is, for lack of a better word, born visually. Uh, do, do you know what? I, 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 I just, it's, it, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question because it gets to the heart of, of, of a really big issue with making films. I think a really complicated issue with making films. So the answer is I explained it as clearly as and honestly as I was able, which I think was a very clear description of exactly what then appeared on film. Um, so, by being specific, in other words, by being very, very specific. Um, how, and however, there's a complication, the complication, mm-hmm. and, and this also, there's a version of this that could happen in, for example, a nude scene, mm-hmm. which is that 
you say to the actor, look, this is the plan, and you need to think about whether you want to do it, and if you feel it's justified. And you also need to try and think forwards into the future to think, uh, I feel this now, but how will I feel about it in five years or 10 years and stuff like that. And the problem with it is, is that even while saying that, you where, where you are saying as much as you can, in a way, um, I also know that it's not enough because there may be a point in the future where somebody regrets it. And, and typically with actors, young and old, but it's particularly true of young actors, they have hopes and they have ambitions and factored into their thinking is if I do this film, maybe this will lead to me doing something else later. And, and then if you look statistically at it, you would say, well, of all young actors, it is unlikely to be you just on a simple mathematical basis. Um, and uh, I can even say that, and I do say that, but I know I'm still not saying enough because, because there's some things that are just unaddressable. Um, mm. So the short answer is I say as much as I can and I'm as honest as I can be. And, and then at a certain point, you have to leave it up to the agency of a person and have some trust in that. That, that, that's basically the argument, I guess. And, um, do you want to query the body horror thing now? Well, it just interests me because, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the imagery that was used, this is going to sound like a sort of, uh, a, a sort of in a complicated way, it will sound like a sort of slightly pious point or a virtue signaling point. And I, I don't, I don't mean it to, I mean to actually, Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm, I'm not interested in that side of it. I'm, I'm, I'm asking about the specifics of it because I do. Mm -hmm. think. Um, uh, uh, cinema has been using, um, aliens, uh, based on deep sea creatures or insects for a long mm -hmm. time. Uh, monsters are often based on insects and deep sea creatures. Mm -hmm. So, so there's often a kind of real world parallel. And when you, when you see the, you know, you're watching a David Attenborough documentary and you think, Oh my God, look, there's, there's the creature from, uh, um, Starship Troopers or, or, mm -hmm. or and, and it kind of all, all makes sense. Um, uh, in this instance, I used birth. Mm -hmm. and the thing about birth is that, uh, although it provokes very visceral responses in people, it's also literally universal um, mm -hmm. because because everybody is a product of either a vaginal birth or a C-section. Mm -hmm. And I got very interested in the making of this film about the degree to which people were horrified by the photographs of birth that we were using as a reference. Um, particularly, I remember one of them was a breech birth where the baby's feet are coming out first. And, um, I, I, and so when you call it body horror, mm -hmm. uh, something in me reacts because I'm querying why is something that is, uh, literally fundamental to the point of, in a sense, being even more fundamental than routine. It's, mm -hmm. it's just necessary. Why is it that that fits into the category of body horror? 
as imagery. And, and I, I find that, I find that just interesting. That's all. So, so I, yeah. I have to, uh, I, I'm aware that this has now become a reverse interview, but I find that really interesting and have actually thought a lot about that as a cisgendered woman as well. And actually a breach birth myself. I was born the other way around. Um, I, obviously I think societally and on a much larger scale, despite birth being a universal thing that connects us all, the female body is still a source of a lot of horror, not just to men, not just to people in general, but to women themselves. Uh, I think there's something deeply troubling and kind of horrific about a the lack of imagery and the sanitized version of imagery of birth um that we're presented even to ourselves so there's a deep lack of knowledge and a visual understanding and a physical understanding of how the female body in particular operates even yeah. even in terms of education of girls um there is a systematic and um very differing according to cultures mutilation of women's bodies um be that extreme or completely um every day in kind of on western terms so that we're very used to and that is called the beauty business that's not called body horror but it is if you break it down body horror in a way um a lot of it involves pain a lot of it involves transformation or mutilation and that is quite it's not i don't think universal but it is but it is quite specific to women and is also not spoken about and is not visualized and if it is it's always a cartoon version of female bodies that's why i refer to it as body horror and the other thing in specific to your film in particular there is something that i think taps into both the 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 un, how unused we are to seeing birth but specifically because we're seeing a man, a male body with a vagina in different parts of the body as well, that is distended and given birth to a full grown man. So I, there's, I, there's I, the John I, Carpenter thing thing and yeah, the fear no. of the female body all combined. I, sure. I, I just, I just wonder, I wonder if people would actually have a weirdly similar reaction if it hadn't been a green man, but it had been a green woman. I wonder if, like, like I, because, because the thing that fascinates me is that, and I, listen, this could be bullshit and it could just be me. It's impossible to know. Right? I, I, I don't know. But, but I think that the horror aspect of it is more seated in the birth side of it than the Rory side of it. That's my, that's my gut mm-hmm. feeling. And, and one of the things, so, so, right. So saying that the Sheila Nagig comes from a period of time where its intentions are unknowable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something in what, in what you said. And I've had these very similar thought processes myself. Now, I don't know what the carver of a Sheila Nagig was thinking when they carved it. And I don't know what somebody at that time was thinking when they saw the Sheila Nagig. But what I do suspect is that whatever they were thinking, they were less horrified by the notion of a vagina and birth than we are now. So the things that you're describing, I'm not sure have always been that way. And oh, I fundamentally agree with that. I think it's entirely uh, how we've socialized ourselves. This is our own narratives back to ourselves that we're nowhere near even close to unpicking. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, it's one of the things. So now, like I say, I don't know, but it seems to me that that's what the Sheila gig represents is something more honest and less bullshitty and less neurotic. And, um, I, I find it also very interesting because that's my gut feeling that the Sheila gig is a, is a less neurotic representation of something. And when you look at, Sheila gigs and where they survived, where they existed and where they survived. Sometimes they survived within churches. So they survived the Victorian era where in museums, Victorians were placing fig leaves on genitals of statues that they revered, bits of classical art and bits of mm-hmm. Renaissance art. And they were covering genitals because they felt embarrassed or concerned or ashamed or whatever. But somehow they got protected and left alone within the churches. And in some sort of fantasy part of my mind, it's almost like somewhere people knew this is an honest expression of something and and we shouldn't touch it. But maybe maybe that's a piece of total fantasy on my behalf. But but what I do think, anyway, it's a sort of psychopath. What I do think is probably true is that the carvers and the viewers of those things were more straightforward about this than we are now. And my resistance to the notion, and I understand your your description of why it does constitute body horror, but Mm -hmm. I do think there's a funny kind of dissonance about saying the thing that is horrifying about this should actually truthfully not be horrifying at all in any way, shape or form. And I think that people might be disingenuous and they might say, no, that it wasn't the birth bit of it it wasn't the vagina bit of it it wasn't the head coming out of a vagina that shocked me it was something else but but having sat in pre-production meetings and watching people react just to actual images of birth mm-hmm. i'm i'm personally not sure that's true but what but like what do i know that that's why well that that what that's what makes it really interesting. I think this applies to all horror in general, but with body horror in particular because we all have bodies and we all have different relationships to our bodies as well, which are completely private and as much as people can be open and talk about them, there's things that are never articulated, sometimes never even out loud. Right. But being confronted with imagery of bodies and of body horror in particular as in the transformation or the destruction of bodies on screen in the context of a horror film there will people will react to different things and the the fact that the birthing the birthing of it all is the thing that troubled people is quite interesting and i think really telling um of the of the viewer and then there's the uncanniness of the of it being a man and also of it being a supernatural man because all the the way that i read it all these men in the film are not strictly human so there is a, a supernatural layer to them that is uh, that connects them all and becomes frightening and something other. Uh, so it's not strictly a human body. But I did want to ask you something kind of that you mentioned. You know, you spoke a lot about the the Sheila statues and that imagery. But the the creature that starts giving birth first is the green man. So yeah. there is. So I wonder about this particular choice. You know, you do on the side of the green man versus the Sheila Nagik or did you or did you envision this as a sort of combination of them both in one figure that is sort of genderless uh, I, I I sort of um, 
to an, it, it's more, it, it's more sort of instinctive than that. And it's less mm. intellectualized, I think. But, um, and also I have to be slightly careful because I, I can find myself using words that are, are sort of buzzwords and therefore get freighted with an extra amount of meaning than the one I'm intending. Um, but it was more to do, so the word is appropriating. It was, it, it was to do with the concept of just taking, mm-hmm. taking and taking mm-hmm. until something fundamental is taken. Um, uh, that there's no limit to what can be taken. Um, and, and I think that, that birth involving wounds was, would be the, a, a sort of final frontier of, of a demonstration of need. <laughs> if you, like, I need, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna stop needing and taking. Mm-hmm. The last thing I could possibly take would be that, and I'm taking it. And, um, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of, um, I think this relates to a question you asked earlier, but then we, we move past, which is that, that in that sequence, uh, look, the structure of a horror film is that, uh, something is typically introduced into the normal world which has a supernatural element so the first question is is this real or is it not real um and then it becomes increasingly clear that it is real and it's powerful and it's usually demonstrating its power then by killing things so there'll be uh seven people and then there's two and Mm -hmm. then one and and so there's there's a, a graph chart that's going up and up and up in terms of supernaturalness and power and malevolence and danger and then at the end the the hero does something brilliant and uh and defeats the monster when it is at its most powerful point um uh and the day is saved and then maybe there's a twist and it's not saved after all but but that but broadly speaking that's the structure and in this uh that's inverted and the creature is in effect more powerful at the beginning of the film than it is at the end. Um, it's, it's final moments. It's kind of monster moment where it's, as it were, flexing its monster muscles. Mm-hmm. It, it's a mixture of, uh, uh, it, it's sort of pleading and weeping and pathetic. And oh, that's it. It was, it, it was the injuries you talked about, the injuries. Um, yes. My, my question was about, um, the, the, the choice to essentially destroy and cause and rip apart, uh, the male body, both Papa's and, and Rory's in the film, but leave Harper relatively physically unscathed, which oh, is the inverse of what usually happens in with female or male characters in, in horror films. And also a question like who's been doing the ripping apart? Like really, you know, mm-hmm. who's been doing it? You know, I, I, I kind of like, to what extent are the wounds self-inflicted effectively? Um, and, uh, even, even the hand stuck through the letterbox is kind of a self-inflicted wound because it, it, if, yeah, it, in, in because a, he pulls it back. It, it, it is because he's pulled it back, but it's also because he's done something to which there's very little response. 
um, if you see what I mean. It, it's mm -hmm. not leaving a lot of choice in terms of what the response is in, in, in a way. So I, it, it was, um, anyway, look, uh, I, I, what's, what's partly happening is, um, uh, the strange digressions of this movie are, uh, are sort of weaving their way around this mind, around my mind. I, I think that, I, I think that in truth, uh, none of what I say matters. Um, and, uh, these are just the thoughts that were going around my head, but I, d I don't mm -hmm. think particularly, I don't think they're particularly insightful or particularly necessary. The, the, the thing that interested me about the film on a personal level was to do with how, how people reacted. And I've got in some respect, in some senses, less and less interested by my own intentions mm -hmm. or my own thought processes and, and, and more interested in in the, the thought processes that get um, uh, triggered or caused. I was trying I was trying to think of a, a different word for triggered, and then I realised I couldn't. <laughs> it's, it, 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 there's so many provoked. Yeah, provoked. Yeah, there you go. Damn it. Um, I I I kind of on that note. Um, I usually would ask kind of what the what would you like? What would uh, a, a filmmaker like the audience to take away but I've read enough interviews with you and just from this conversation and what you've just said I, I can see that that's not really the intention uh, so I'm going to rephrase it and kind of ask you what has been the most provoking or illuminating reaction that you've gotten to men well uh, it, it's the one that I expected I suppose I, I expected it which is why I kind of gave up on one side of it, which is, which is, um, people saying the film is this, the, the film is saying this, or the film is doing this. Uh, it's a feminist film or it's a misogynistic film or it's a misandristic film, if that's the right way of using that word. I'm not sure it is. Um, but you, you know what I mean? Or, yeah, um, I do. I, and, um, and what, what I, what, what I, sometimes those responses are dismaying because I think in a way, how could you possibly think that's, that's what I'm intending or what I'm doing or, uh, so, so, but, but in other ways, I've really, really genuinely, truthfully come to expect it. And, um, uh, but I guess, I guess, I guess in this, in this movie, I have had from people I know very, very well, mm -hmm. 180 degree different interpretations of the movie. And so what the film has provoked them to think, and then what I have been provoked by in terms of their response, incredulity or relief or whatever it happens to be. Because within that, there are 180 degree disagreements. Um, in the end, I just kind of retreat. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, um, I, I'm going to try and be honest again and say I've been talking about this film for about the past four hours um, or, or three and a half hours or something and uh, I, I, I had, none of the interviews have been ex really like this one but um, uh, what, what happens is increasingly you lose track of 
of what you mean to say. And, and it, it's almost like the interview enters into a sort of dreamlike state. I've, I've had this happen before and I, I worry about my own sense of articulacy and, uh, uh, my own ability to be precise about things that I really want to be precise about. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it's frustrating, slightly anxiety producing. So I, I, I'm giving myself a, a kind of caveat or get out clause of if I'm talking total bullshit, it's because, <laughs> it's because I'm sort of, it's because I'm fried. The inside of my brain at the moment looks like a fried egg. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I hope that, um, this one has not been as dreary. I, I fully, I always really deeply empathize with the tediousness of junkets. I no, people have to answer the same things over and over again. Yeah. Okay. But, but you're, you're not, you're, just to be clear, you're not tedious. What you are is challenging, right? So, so you're asking, you're asking questions where I cannot just fall back on an easy answer, right? I'm going to take that as a compliment. It, it is a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. But, but it also, it, it's like, I would rather, I'd rather have the conversation with like a clean brain and a cup of coffee and a cigarette or something to think, right, okay, I've really got to think about that answer. But like, whatever. I mean, I mean, the benefit, and I say this truthfully, the reason I much prefer doing audio interviews than, and listening to them actually, um, very often more than reading them and doing print interviews is because of this. It's because the, the voice and the things that someone says when they're being interviewed and the when and the how they're being interviewed can actually be heard. And that adds so much more, I think, to what you're saying than just reading a blanket statement, which always reads blanket in a print interview, I think. Sure. I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, the, the thing is, that um, this is going to sound like smoke, but, but if you ask a smart question, then I want to give a smart answer, but I also want to give an honest answer. And, um, sometimes that's just tricky. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I think, I think this has been a really, um, really challenging interview both ways as well, which I also mean as a compliment. But, uh, I'm conscious as well of your brain being like a fried egg at this point. So I do want to let you go to go off and rest. But, uh, I do want to end on one question, if I may, yeah. and maybe okay. don't answer it if you, if it's too much at this point, no, but no, no, it's something, I'll, I'll do my best. it's something you mentioned about kind of being the things that you wanted to articulate the most or be most precise about mm. when being asked or answering questions about this film. Mm. Um, is there something, that perhaps, you know, now post can, um, with all the interviews and press coming in, all these things. Is there something that you do want to be really, really specific and precise about that perhaps you haven't been asked or hasn't come up or you think about it after an interview is done? It's like, no, this is the thing that I want to say about this film. Um, well, uh, when, when I was, being interviewed for this film, I wasn't actually in Cannes. And when I, a lot of, when I was doing the, the, the actual press junket for this, I was mm-hmm. actually shooting another movie. I only finished it a few days ago. So I haven't, I haven't really been, uh, and that was a very difficult film to shoot. Mm-hmm. Very complicated, very, very, very intense. So I haven't really been plugged into that stuff. Um, I, I do, what, what, so, so in a way, it's less from interviews and it's more from conversations and more from exchanges. Um, but, but I think that 
the thing that I always want to say is that I'm more doubtful and more thoughtful than I feel sometimes people assume. So uh, it's the, I, I'm not, that the people ascribe intentions or thought processes to me that often feel broad or naive or uh, indelicate um, and make assumptions about me that, that I sort of, it's like I want to say, no, 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 I, of, of course I see that point of view. I, uh, um, th like, this bit of the film is an acknowledgement of that, but then there's, but, but it's, it's a, um, the, the thing, the things are often probably more humorous, like less serious, more, bit more thoughtful, bit more gentle, uh, than people think. But, but that could be because the presentation of the film itself feels so loud. I mean, it could be that, that it, it precludes the possibility that actually it's nuanced or, or, or gentler than, than people think. So it, it, it's something like that, but that's more based on conversations than it is from the process of doing interviews. I think I've sensed it in interviews sometimes. Um, the, that people's like one of the things would be uh i guess it would be people would say you seem to be making a point about this and it would be something like uh victim blaming or or eve eating an apple from a tree or something like that and i'm thinking no 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 like I, i'm not making a point about that i'm 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 treating that as as a kind of given that that we we know that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for this other thing over here, but, but it seems like, um, uh, but, but somehow the sort of thought process ascribed to me never gets to those areas. It, it's, it's something like that. I, I, I've, I've done the sort of fried egg thing and got myself back down the rabbit hole and, and drop back into the inarticulacy. I, I think what, I think what I'm trying to say is just what I started saying. I should have shut up at that point. It, it's gentler and it's more thoughtful than, mm -hmm. than it might seem. Uh, and, uh, in a way less earnest and more doubting, maybe. That's an interesting thread and I could, pull it up but I think I'm gonna have to let you go and I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation well, uh it's you. been it's you. been truly interesting good <laughs> I, I, I hope that's a good interesting so, so absolutely great interesting um but but uh, th thanks for your questions and thanks for forcing me to think I appreciate it